Chapter 17 of A Bunch of Everlastings, or Texts That Made History, by Frank W. Borum. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tim Bauer. Chapter 17. James Hannington's Text. He is a proud young English gentleman, wealthy, cultured, athletic, and the words smite him like a blow in the face. Not fit for the kingdom of God. Not fit for the kingdom of God. Those who know him best would say that he is fit for anything, yet these are the stinging words that confront him in the crisis of his young career. Not fit for the kingdom of God. Not fit for the kingdom of God. He is the kind of fellow upon whom you would bestow a second glance if it were your good fortune to meet him on the street. He is tall, lithe, handsome, and splendidly proportioned. He strikes you as having every nerve and sinew under perfect control. His face is vigorous and arresting, without seeming in the least degree self-assertive or pugnacious. It suggests boundless energy and dauntless resolution. His eyes are gray and full of mischief. His voice is resonant, impressive, commanding. His laugh is boisterous, contagious, unforgettable. Although still young, he has traveled widely, has visited the famous cities of the continent, and in his own yacht has navigated the waterways of Europe. He is just finishing his undergraduate career at Oxford. Come with me to his room at St. Mary's Hall, and, as you glance around its walls, the medley of objects that will meet the eye will furnish us with some index to his character. In the center of everything is a portrait of his mother, a stately and beautiful lady, from whom he has inherited many of his noblest traits. Arranged around it are the bones of many curious monsters, the crude but cunning weapons of barbarous peoples. In the corner stands a miscellaneous collection of riding whips, whilst here, under the window, stands a tank in which numbers of live fish disport themselves. For our gay young undergraduate is a naturalist. The woods and the waters have taken him into their confidence, and have freely yielded up their secrets. Here he is, then, standing on the threshold of destiny. He appears to be one of fortune's darlings. All that exceptional gifts, careful training, extensive travel, and the highest education can do for a man has been done for him. And yet, as he prepares to turn all these priceless advantages to some account, and to set his face seriously towards his life work, these are the words that smite him in the face and stab him to the quick. Not fit for the kingdom of God. Not fit for the kingdom of God like the rich young ruler whom he so strikingly resembles he turns away sorrowful the gaiety of his spirit is clouded in gloom not fit for the kingdom of god what is it that with all his charm and his accomplishments he still lacks it is on the eve of his ordination that these cruel words rebuke him for in striving to equip himself for the useful life that he so earnestly desires he has by no means forgotten the loftiest claims of all the fear of God is constantly before his eyes. With all his fun and frolic, his passion for sport, and his thirst for adventure, James Hannington is, in reality, a fervently religious youth. At the back of his mind he is revolving some tremendous problems. Let me copy a couple entries from his private journal. The one was written in his eighteenth year, and the other in his twentieth, March 20, 1868. I have been much tempted of late to turn Roman Catholic, and nearly did so, but my faith has been much shaken by reading Cardinal Manning's funeral sermon for Cardinal Wiseman, over whose death I mourned much. He said that Cardinal Wiseman's last words were, Let me have all that the church can do for me. 
I seem to see at once that if the highest ecclesiastic stood thus in need of external rights on his deathbed, the system must be rotten, and I gave up all idea of departing from our Protestant faith. From this significant entry, with its revelation of great thoughts stirring in the soul, I turn to one of a very different kind, yet of no less value. March 9, 1867. I lost my ring out shooting, with scarcely a hope of seeing it again. I offered to give the gamekeeper ten shillings if he found it, and was led to ask God that the ring might be found and be to me a sure sign of salvation. From that moment the ring seemed on my finger, and I was not surprised when Sayers brought it to me on Monday evening. He had picked it up in the long grass in cover, a most unlikely place ever to find it, a miracle. Jesus, by thee alone can we obtain remission of our sins. The diary contains a footnote to this entry, written by Hannington some years afterwards. This, he says, was written by me at the most worldly period of my existence. Yet, there it is. These entries prove that, however far from the kingdom Hannington may have been, he kept his face turned wistfully and steadfastly towards its gates. The deep religious impulses throbbing in his soul moved him to associate himself with the church, to receive upon his lips the awful mysteries of the Christian sacrament, and later on to apply for ordination. But as he drew nearer to that solemn and searching ceremony, his conscience cried out and his heart failed him. How I dread my ordination, he writes. I would willingly draw back, but when I am tempted to do so, I hear ringing in my ears. No man, having put his hand to the plough, and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. What am I to do? What? What, indeed? He felt that he was not fit for the kingdom of God, and dare not go on, and yet, if he turned back, he was only giving further evidence of his unfitness. Here was a dilemma. He resolved at length to go on, and in going on, to seek with full purpose of heart that fitness that he felt he lacked. It is characteristic of the man, says his biographer, that he should have faced what he now dreaded with an almost morbid fear. His conscience would have absolved him on no other terms. No man having put his hand to the plough and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. Those words held him fast to his purpose, so he made his decision. But the decision did not relieve his deep spiritual embarrassment, for, whilst he felt that he dared not look back, he felt that he was unfit to go on, not fit for the kingdom of God, not fit for the kingdom of God. The words beat themselves into his brain. It was a terrible situation, and he saw no way of escape. The way of escape came by post. It sometimes does. There are a few choice spirit in God's world who have mastered the high art of conducting a religious correspondence. They can write without gush and without gloom. Their letters are neither sentimental nor sanctimonious. His old comrade and chum, the Reverend E. C. Dawson, M.A., who afterwards became his biographer, was, about this time, greatly concerned on Hannington's behalf. I could not tell why, he says, but the burden seemed to press upon me more heavily day by day. At last he resolved to write. He knew Hannington's scorn of Kant, and feared that such a letter would offend him. Still, he says, I reasoned that a friendship was to be lost. It should be, at least, well lost. So I wrote a simple, unvarnished account of my own spiritual experience. I tried to explain how it was that I was not now as formerly. 
I spoke of the power of the love of Christ to transform the life of a man and to draw out all its latent possibilities, and finally I urged him, as he loved his own soul, to make a definite surrender of himself to the Savior of the world. And the result? For the result we must turn to the diary. July 15. Dawson, who is now a curate in Surrey, opened a correspondence with me today, which I can only describe as delightful. It led to my conversion. I was in bed at the time reading, he says, in a note written years afterwards. I sprang out of bed and leaped about the room, rejoicing and praising God that Jesus died for me. From that day to this, I have lived under the shadow of his wings, in the assurance that I am his, and he is mine. And, writing to Dawson, the author of the letter, he says, I have never seen so much light as during the past few days. I know now that Jesus died for me, and that he is mine, and I am his. I ought daily to be more thankful to you as the instrument by whom I was brought to Christ. Unspeakable joy! It led to my conversion. I now know that Jesus died for me. Unspeakable joy! Unspeakable joy! Five years filled with happy and fruitful ministry pass away. He is now a proud husband and the father of a little family. All at once, England is stirring to its death by the news that Lieutenant Shergold Smith and Mr. O'Neill have been murdered on the shore of Victoria Nyanza. It affects Hannington like a challenge. He longs to go and fill one of the vacant places. Unable to resist the call, he offers and is accepted. As the time for his departure approaches, he realizes the bitterness of the ordeal that he must face. His people... The congregation is in tears whenever he enters the pulpit. His wife, who had so bravely consented to his application, but finds it so hard to let him go, his little ones. This, he says, as he records the anguish of farewell, this was my most bitter trial, an agony that still cleaves to me, saying good-bye to the little ones. Thank God that all the pain was on one side. Over and over again I thank him for that. Come back soon, Papa, they cried. Then the servants all attached to me, my wife, the bravest of them all, over the chapter that tells of such experiences, his biographer has inscribed a quotation from Epictetus. If some whiffling or chilling be granted you, well and good, but if the captain call, run to the ship and leave such possessions behind you, not looking back. But if the work had been an autobiography, and if Hannington himself had chosen the inscription for the heading of that chapter, he would have selected the words that surged through his brain every day and many times a day. No man, having put his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. No man looking back, cries the philosopher. No man looking back is fit for the kingdom of God, says Hannington's text. With such words in his heart, he fought his way through his valley of weeping and set out for darkest Africa. But he was driven back, as even the bravest sometimes are. In Africa he was beset by fever after fever. For weeks on end he could not rise from his mattress. His emaciation was terrible to behold. Can it be long before I die, he said one day to Cecil Gordon. No, replied his companion, nor can you desire that it should be so. I have a distinct remembrance, says Mr. Copplestone, another member of the party, of one of the few walks which he was able to take with myself. Copplestone, he said, I do not think that I can recover from this illness. Let us go that we may choose a place for my grave. So we went, and he selected a spot where he said we were to bury him. 
he did not expect that he could live long in such a state as that in which he then was a day or two later mr stokes who had left the party to find a road to the lake victoria nyanza unexpectedly returned but let the diary tell its own story october sixth slightly better but still in very great pain to our immense surprise stokes turned up early this morning when i heard his voice i exclaimed i shall live and not die it inspired me with new life i felt that they had returned that i might go with them and so they had he had to be carried in a hammock however in the course of the journey he was often at death's door clearly there was nothing for it but a return to england yet all the way home he felt that he was beating a retreat no man having put his hand to the plough and looking back is fit for the kingdom of god the words haunted him night and day as he paced the deck of the homebound steamer forgive the one that turned back it is with that penitent petition that he closes this chapter of the diary he turned back but not for long he had put his hand to the plough and he felt that to show himself fit for the kingdom of god he must faithfully finish the furrow he had solemnly given himself to africa and he was unwilling to take back his gift in eighteen eighty three at the age of thirty-six he found himself in england rejoicing in the sweet society of wife and children and friends little by little his health came back to him and with its coming his old text said it say not fit for the kingdom of god no man looking back is fit for the kingdom of god no man having put his hand to the plough and looking back is fit for the kingdom of god in mr dawson's great biography only half a dozen pages intervene between his arrival in england in june eighteen eighty three and his consecration as bishop of eastern equatorial africa in the june of the following year on returning to the dark continent he is overjoyed at finding his health as robust as it formerly was precarious i have to praise god he says in one of his early notes for one of the most successful journeys as a journey that i ever took during a tramp through over four hundred miles i enjoyed most excellent health he delighted his friends by completing his preliminary march sunburnt and shaggy but glowing with vigor having thus tested his physical resources he prepared for his great march to uganda the story of that famous and fateful journey need not be retold it is one of the world's great romances everybody knows that all unsuspecting the bishop went straight to his death a new king was on the throne the white men were no longer in favor the natives were ready to murder the first englishman they saw as soon as he drew near to the seat of government he was seized i felt he says in his last journal that i was being dragged away to be murdered but i sang safe in the arms of jesus and laughed at the very agony of my situation each day though naked starving and racking with excruciating pains he dots down in his diary the thoughts that comfort him he can only write two or three words at a time but he contrives to interrupt the journal to the last no news he says in the final entry i was upheld by the thirteenth psalm which came with great power a hyena howled near me last night smelling a sick man but i hope it is not to have me yet the next day the native warriors sent by the king came to kill him he struggled to his feet stood erect and told them that he was glad to die for them and for their people seeing them hesitate as to how to end his life he pointed to his own gun and with it they dispatched him he was only thirty-eight Today a great cathedral marks the spot where he fell 
Never in my life was I so moved, says Bishop Tucker, as when I preached in that cathedral to a congregation of from four to five thousand people. Many of the communicants bore upon their bodies the scars and disfigurements of their former barbarity. Clearly he did not die in vain. If, he says in his last letter, if this is the last chapter of my earthly history, then the next will be the first page of the heavenly. No blots and smudges, no incoherence, but sweet converse in the presence of the Lamb. He put his hand to the plow. He finished his furrow, never looking back. He was fit for the kingdom of God. End of chapter 17